Your purpose for living, your goal in life, determines how you're going to live your life, how you interpret your life experiences, how you plan, how you respond in circumstances. And Jesus was determined. It's the literal rendering in the Greek is set his face. Set his face. In fact, it's the way the ESV translates it. This is why a lot of what Jesus did was confusing to his followers because they didn't completely grasp what his purpose and mission and goal was. They had their own agenda. The apostles believed they were following Jesus so that when he got to Jerusalem, he would overthrow the religious leaders, assemble an army, and overthrow Rome, and reign on David's throne from on high, and they would get to reign with him. They had parts of the story correct. But their timing was off, and a lot of the details of the mission were lacking. And so we'll see again and again and again the apostles acting in ways that are consistent with the goal in their heart, but inconsistent with Jesus' goals. And when you look at your own life, I contend that where we're all missing the mark is when our heart has a different goal than Jesus has. And even after we're saved and we're given a new heart, we still battle with the flesh. And there's this constant struggle between what I think the agenda should be and what God's agenda is. What I think the interpretation of this circumstance should be and what God's interpretation is. And so, we'll see this passage here that is just so shocking to us, but I think when we work through it, we'll find it's not so shocking after all. In fact, our hearts are bent the same way. So in order to get to Jerusalem from Galilee, you have to pass through Samaria or go around it. And many Jews from the north chose to go around Samaria because they hated Samaritans. Hated them. Better to go out of your way which would add days to your trip. Cross over the Jordan, cut down on the east side of the Jordan, then cut back over to get to Jerusalem. Then go through Samaria. And I could replace the name Samaria with, with other cities in the modern age, and you would understand. But I don't want to offend anyone. <laughs> don't want to offend anyone. The only city I have a right to put in there is my hometown of Stockton, which would fit perfectly. <laughs> I'm allowed to say that. But it was worse than that. It wasn't just the crime, and we knew it was dangerous to pass through Samaria. Remember Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan? The man passing through Samaria gets robbed and waylaid on the road. 
So if you're going to go through Samaria, you better go with a large group of travelers to remain safe. But the real reason Jews didn't want to pass through Samaria was because they didn't want to be defiled. Want to be defiled around Samaritans, half-breeds. They were half-breeds. They were part Jewish, part Gentile. And so to keep themselves ceremonially pure, they avoided the Samaritans like the plague. So it says in Luke 9.52 that Jesus sent messengers on ahead of him. They're going to pass through Samaria. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. Set up some lodging, a place to sleep, place to eat, maybe even a place to teach. I mean, for you and I, if, if, if Jesus' apostles came to our house and said, do you have a room for Jesus? I mean, he's getting my room. I'll sleep on the floor. What an honor that would be. But the Samaritans have heard of Jesus. Everybody in the region has heard of him. And it says they did not receive him. Why? Why wouldn't you receive Jesus? It says because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Let me unpack that for you. Because he's a Jew from the north heading to Jerusalem. And they assumed he was like all Jews from the north heading to Jerusalem. They hated Samaritans and wouldn't give them the time of day. And so we're not going to give him the time of day. And this hatred goes way back. Way back. And doesn't it always? When one people group hates another people group, where did this hatred come from? And it can work its way all the way down to the more intimate level of why does this family not get along with this family? Or why do these people inside this family not get along with people inside this family? If there's one thing we can all be sure about the human heart is its capacity to hate. Love is really, actually miraculous. The world thinks love is the default position of the human heart. The Bible tells us just the opposite. Prophet Jeremiah said, the heart, it's deceitful and desperately wicked. And who can understand it? I can't even understand my own heart half the time. Where did that crop up from? If you're not suspicious of your own heart, you are blind, my friend. You are blind. Oh, I'm suspicious of other hearts, but not my own. Oh, what a terrible place to be. That is a position of self-righteousness. Thinking too highly of yourself. So these people disrespected Jesus and his followers by not receiving them. And the apostles were livid. 
live. Don't you know who we are? Don't you know who Jesus is? Back during the exile, when the Jews were sent to Babylon for idolatry, and after the 70 years ended and they came back, the whole purpose of coming back was to start over with a pure form of worship. Well, not all the Jews went to Babylon. Some of the survivors stayed, but Babylon took all the talent and left behind the leftovers. That attitude stayed with the Jewish people. Samaritans found their roots in history in the leftovers. Not only that, the leftovers stayed behind and intermarried with pagans and became syncretists. They mixed Judaism with idolatry. So when the exiles came back and wanted to rebuild the temple, you'll read in Ezra and Nehemiah that at one point, some of the Samaritans said, we'd like to help rebuild the temple. And they said, no, you're not worthy. And that stayed with them for hundreds and hundreds of years. Second-class citizens, half-breeds, idolaters, unworthy. And so the Samaritans had to worship on their own mountain. They couldn't worship in Jerusalem. They worshiped on Mount Gerizim. Do you remember Mount Gerizim from the book of Joshua? The people go into the promised land. They have a few initial victories. Then they gather in this valley between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And it's this amazing natural amphitheater that even today you can go and hear your voice amplified in that amphitheater. And half of the tribes of Israel stood on Gerizim and half stood on Ebal. And on Ebal, they read all the curses from the book of the law of Moses that would happen if they disobeyed God. And then they read all the blessings from the Mount Gerizim. And so the Samaritans said, we will worship on Mount Gerizim. And so that was their place of worship. You might remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus, years earlier, passed through Samaria, sent his apostles at midday for some lunch, and he met a woman at a well. And she was a Samaritan woman, bad enough, but she was also an adulteress. She was the lowest of the low. I mean, she was already a Samaritan, but even the other Samaritan women would not let her come and get water in the cool of the morning. She was probably mocked and teased, and it was just easier to come by herself in the middle of the day to get the water. And Jesus has this interaction with her and knows that She's had many husbands and 
or men, and the one she's with now is not her husband also. And instead of judgment, he offers her mercy. And she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she she didn't know what to do. You're you're a Jew. I perceive you're a prophet, but I'm not supposed to be worshiping you because I'm not worthy. I have to worship over here. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And he goes on to tell her that God will be looking for worshipers in spirit and in truth. And he offers her water and she says, you don't have anything to draw water out of the well from. And he says, I'm offering living water. And if you drink this water, you'll never thirst again. And she said, sir, give me this water always. And he says, I am the living water. Uses that I am statement. The the name of God. And she believes in him and she goes back to tell all of her friends. And then the apostles come back and they're like, why were you talking to that woman? And we don't find out whether he ever tells them the story. But we have this story. They return to Samaria and they're passing through and a village won't receive Jesus. And James and John, two of the big three, James, John, and Peter, those were the big three apostles, the ones in Jesus's inner circle. James and John, who Jesus had nicknamed Boanerges. In Aramaic, it means the sons of thunder. You can only imagine what kind of Rough and tumble, probably salty language, fishermen looking for a brawl kind of guys these were. And when his disciples, James and John, saw that Jesus was rejected by the Samaritan village, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? It's an absolutely shocking statement. Knowing what Jesus was about and who the apostles would later become. In fact, John would be known as the apostle of love at the end of his life. But he was ready to nuke them. In the Old Testament, Elijah the prophet, and I'm not talking about the story where he called down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel, but another time when the fire from heaven came down and judged some people rightfully. They must have been thinking of that. It really reminds me of the prophet Jonah, though. Jonah sent to Nineveh, the hated Ninevites, the wicked Ninevites, the Ninevites that deserve judgment, Preach repentance to them. And Jonah's not having anything of it. Not because he's afraid of what the Ninevites will do to him. But he's like, God, I know you're merciful. I know what you're up to. And he preaches the message of repentance. Clearly not from the heart. 
He just does what he's told because he goes and sits up on a cliff and waits for God to nuke Nineveh. And he wants to watch. If there was a popcorn vendor (laughs) and God raises up a plant to shade him and he's like, oh, yeah, I I deserve mercy. And then the plant withers and dies and he's mad at God. And God uses it as an object lesson. Did you deserve the plant? And by the end of the story, it doesn't appear that Jonah gets it. It just ends. God says, you would have me destroy an entire city and and numbers off how many people are in the city, women and children and and even cattle. And, And the story is just left hanging there. And here we have James and John ready to nuke a village. They don't know anyone in that village. All they know is someone who has the authority in the village to reject Jesus. Rejected Jesus. Nuke them all. And as as shocking as it is on paper, I find this principle working in my own heart. And yours too. Every time I hear that radical Islamists have blown something up. A concert or a pizza parlor. I'm just done. I'm done with it. Done with it. Nuke them all. I know it's not the answer, but for a moment, and sometimes the moment lasts longer than a moment. I'm tired of the leftists in our country, the Bible haters who think Christianity is the problem. Using all kinds of vile tactics to push their agenda through. And you get angry and you're like, if somehow we could just get rid of them. Or maybe it's closer to home and it's somebody in your neighborhood. Who's wrecking the neighborhood for everybody. Bringing down property values. Some of you have moved up here to to get out of the crime of maybe Lancaster or Bakersfield. I've heard your stories. And we're going to run out of places to run. Sometimes it's as close as extended family. You've got some of those family members that are just destroying the family and they have no idea that they're doing it. They ruin everything. And you wish they would just go away. And sometimes this hatred reveals itself even against believers. That person at church or that family. And 
I love our church, but if that if that one person wasn't here, that would then it would be perfect. And I'm not letting any of these people off the hook. Sin is sin. Self being self-absorbed and not realizing that you're making everyone miserable around you is a real problem. And if we telescope back out the other direction, by the time you're blowing up little girls at rock concerts, yeah, that's a problem. I'm not turning a blind eye to the problem. I am just pointing to this passage and saying we all have the tendency to think that the solution is to get rid of everybody who's not living like Jesus. And then we realize eventually the church would be empty if we got rid of everybody who's not living like Jesus. And if that were the policy, I wouldn't be before you today. Nobody would have reached out to me. Nobody would have put up with me in my state of unbelief and rebellion. And so Jesus says to them, he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. Now we hit one of these sections of scripture that again doesn't appear in the better manuscripts. Verse 56, for the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Certainly that Scripture, whether or not it was in Luke's original gospel, does not contradict what the rest of the Bible teaches. In fact, from what we know of Jesus, this very well may have been what he said to them. But that's the sentiment behind the rebuke. In the same way that when Peter said, Oh, Lord, you'll never go to the cross. And Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. You've got the wrong agenda. You don't know what kind of spirit you are of. So I just, for a few minutes, wanted to explore what heart attitude is behind this kind of behavior. If you don't ever ask what is going on in the heart, you're never going to change in any real way. You can't just say, well, I just need to stop getting angry at people who frustrate me. You're not going to stop being angry. It doesn't work that way. You have to see what is at the root and at the heart of this kind of anger that would cause someone to ask Jesus, do you want me to call down fire from heaven and consume this village? So what is going on in the heart there? Here's the list I came up with. You might add things to the list. But number one, self-righteousness. I can only say that if I believe that I am not worthy of judgment. I can only say, let's call down fire from heaven and consume these people if I think that I somehow am not guilty. 
of judgment. Not worthy of judgment. So when you're ready to nuke someone, check your heart for self-righteousness. It'll sound like, well, I have the right to judge others because I'm doing well. Or I deserve heaven and they deserve hell. Or I don't need to be patient and wait for these people because God doesn't need to be patient with me. All of these are self-righteous attitudes. The second thing that might be going on in your heart, I get from James 4.1. Not this James, the half-brother of James who wrote the book of James. In James 4, he says, where do fights and quarrels come from? And we want to say all those other people who are messing up. And he says, no, no, no. It comes from your desires that wage war in your flesh. You want what you want, but you can't have it. So you commit murder. He, he skips all the way to murder. He skips past the ugly attitude and everything that leads up to murder and just cuts to the chase. You just want this person gone. You think that will fix everything. And so look for that attitude of, I'm mad at this person because they're getting in the way of what I want. Getting in the way of what I want. I want a nice, quiet neighborhood where everybody follows the rules. My precious next-door neighbor has her house on the market, and we're secretly hoping it won't sell. <laughs> so we don't want her to leave. And praying that if she does leave, that God would put wonderful neighbors in there. When maybe if my heart was in the right place and God's agenda was my agenda, I should be praying for unbelievers that we could witness to. But I'd rather the unbelievers live like five or six doors down or maybe the next block over or maybe that side of the, the city. The final attitude is one where you're upset with someone because you've been disrespected. Disrespected. I see so often Christians getting angry with the secular left in our country Because they treat us like we're idiots and we're stupid and we don't understand anything and we're uneducated. And we seem to get more upset over that than the fact that they mock our Christ. And so a lot of that Newcomb attitude is not so much because they're mocking Christ... Of course they're mocking Christ. They're unbelievers. They need to be saved. So why are we so upset? Because they mock us. The second wrong attitude, though, would be to go to the other end of the pendulum, the other side of the spectrum, and offer this cheap grace 
gospel to the world. So right after Jesus says, you know, don't don't nuke them. I didn't come to judge people. Three men come to Jesus, all saying they want to follow him. And Jesus basically turns them away. Like, I, I don't get it. You don't you don't want to nuke them, but you won't let them be followers. Well, that's not exactly what's going on here. But let me introduce you to the first guy. As they are going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. That sounds great. Boy, if I met an unbeliever who said, I want to follow Jesus wherever he goes, I'm like, oh, yes. Baptize him, put him in the new members class, put him to work. And Jesus says to him, because he knows his heart, and only Jesus knows a heart. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. See, he knew that this man wasn't really looking for eternal life. He was just looking for a slightly improved life. He was just looking to better his situation. Wherever Jesus is going and and wherever Jesus ends up setting up shop, it's got to be better than what I'm doing. I got nothing to lose. And sometimes we try to witness to people like that. Here's what it means to be a Christian. Hey, your life stinks now. It can only get better. Give Jesus a shot. That's not the gospel. They might follow Jesus for a little while, but then when they decide, you know what, this is what I had in mind either. Oh, look, that, one's, that guy's got another plan. I'll go follow that plan. So sometimes I think we try to coax people into church just by saying, you know, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which is true. But the way that we sell it sounds like there's not going to be suffering and trials and persecution. Following Jesus means life gets harder. But it gets easier in the sense that you're no longer having to strive for heaven. Jesus has taken care of that for you. And you no longer have to deal with the utter meaninglessness of a Christless life. Now life has ultimate meaning. That's the, that's the better part. Second guy comes along and he, Jesus says, follow me. And the man says, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. It's not that his father had recently died. What he was saying was, Let me go home and wait for my father to die so I can get my inheritance. Because it'd be a lot easier to follow you if I had money. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead, which I don't recommend ever saying to somebody. Jesus could say this because he knew the man's heart. If you sense that somebody doesn't really want to follow Jesus, doesn't really want the kingdom of heaven, but wants their own kingdom, you can point them to this passage and help them to see, look, here's a man who didn't really want the kingdom. Because Jesus says to him, as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. You don't need your inheritance to proclaim the kingdom of God. And if all you're worried about is your inheritance, you're not going to proclaim the kingdom of God. You're only going to be worried about your own kingdom. 
It's not teaching that inheriting money from your parents is wrong. It's just saying that Jesus knew this man's heart. He didn't want forgiveness from sins. He didn't want eternal life. He was fascinated with Jesus, but his heart was in his inheritance. When Jesus tells us if we'll follow him, the inheritance that's laid up for us in heaven is beyond comprehension. third man comes along and he says, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's a farming analogy. You, you can't plow a straight furrow if you're constantly looking behind you. You have to pick an object at the other side of the field and fix your gaze on it and not be distracted. He understood that this man wanted to be accepted by the world and he wanted to be accepted by Jesus. And so you see people who dabble in Christianity but never give their heart to Jesus because they don't want the world to reject them. But they also like these church people because they're nice and maybe I can straddle the fence. In Jesus' day, to follow Jesus would have meant complete rejection by your family. You've gone apostate. So Jesus knew if this man went home and tried to appease his family, whatever his relationship with Jesus was would have to be such that his family would still find him acceptable. Jesus is preaching a message that is offensive to the world. It's, it's a message of lordship. You don't get to be your own lord anymore. It's a message of salvation. You're guilty of sin and deserve punishment. You need a savior. It's a message of exclusivity. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The the, the, not a way, a truth, and a life. These are not popular views with the world. And we're like, well, the gospel is so hard. Who's really going to come to faith? And the people who are making life difficult for us, nuke them. Or we swing the pendulum the other way. and We say, maybe if we just slip them in the kingdom through the back door. Offer them whatever it is that they're looking for. And we soft pedal the gospel. We call it cheap grace or easy beliefism. Both views are wrong. And we need to be honest with each other and say, living in the correct groove is really difficult. Really difficult. Hard to keep those things Intention. I have to hate the world, but I have to love those that are in the world. I have to judge in the sense that, yes, what they're doing is wrong. I can't just pat people on the back and say, well, it's okay, God loves you anyways. 
Yet at the same time, I can't become judgmental. So I can't stop judging, but I have to be careful not to become judgmental. I have to be winsome when I present the gospel, but I can't sugarcoat it to try to get as many people into the kingdom as I can. So what do these two heart attitudes have in common? There there is a common thread, and, and here it is. When I forget who who is God and who is not God, that is when I fall into one of these errors. When I decide that I get to be the judge, I'm playing God's role. And so I need to repent and go back to, wait a minute, I'm one of those people who deserve judgment, but only for the grace of God and my faith in Jesus Christ. Can I be a follower of Christ and know that he loves me? I've got to constantly preach the gospel to my heart and remind myself I'd know better than they are. Until I met Jesus Christ and he revealed himself to me and changed my heart. The only difference between me and him is timing. Hopefully. Hopefully his day's coming where he'll have an encounter with the living Christ and he'll believe in Christ, and then everything will start to change. But I so badly want that day to come that I find myself falling into the other mistake. I think he's saved. Close enough. Let's start on the sanctification. I'm going to look at my fellow pastors, Craig and Nathan here. How many counseling sessions have you been in where you wanted so badly for this person to change And deep down, you were like, I'm pretty sure they actually aren't a believer, but we got to do something to keep this marriage together. We got to do something. And so you just say, close enough. And you give them the biblical counseling they need, and they just reject it. They want five steps to a better whatever. Give me some ideas for date nights for me and my wife. You don't even love her the way you're supposed to. You don't need cheap date night advice. Go to Barnes and Noble. There's, go buy the book yourself. And so I'm reminded that I can't soft pedal the gospel. No lasting change will happen. But at the same time, I can't be like, well, they refuse to believe. Get out of my office. This is a waste of time. Jesus would have me patiently and prayerfully and humbly present the gospel from all different angles, but it's always the same gospel. Looking for that next entrance point where maybe this is what God will use for the light to go on. Now, just one disclaimer here. Matthew 18 teaches us that at some point in the church, you can no longer allow an unrepentant sinner to be 
sowing seeds of sin throughout the flock. But I believe that is a very distant last resort. And you go back to the table again and again and again and again and again and again. It's not us. One, two, three, they're out. I know there's three steps in the process, but it's not that quick. Any leaning in the right direction, run with it. Encourage it. Cultivate it. But always with Scripture and never apart from Scripture. It's only Scripture that's going to change a heart, not your clever ideas, your clever advice. So there you have it. Two mistakes we need to avoid. Two wrong attitudes in the heart we need to avoid. And they, they, they come from the same root, which is I'm God. I'll decide who needs to be judged and who we can let in the back door. So, playing God's always a bad idea, my friends. There's only one God And it's the one we worship and obey. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, you are our God. You are the one and only true God. Only you know the human heart. Forgive us for when we judge another person's heart and believe we know exactly what's going on in there. Forgive us for when we judge our own heart and think we know exactly what's going on in there, Lord. We need you to reveal these things to us. We pray desperately you would reveal our heart to ourselves. Teach us to be suspicious of our great ideas. Teach us to be suspicious of our own report card we give ourselves and others. For your report card is the only one that matters. And on the cross, that A-plus is available to all. Lord, at the same time, help us not turn a blind eye to sin. Help us not soft-pedal the gospel. Help us not to turn our church into a coffee shop, country club. May gospel ministry emanate from this church in everything that we do. Only then will you be glorified and only then will lives be changed. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen and amen.